This podcast is for grown-ups only. Some of the content may not be appropriate for little ears like mine. We need to understand history. We need to listen. We need to understand where people are coming from. Um, But I think that also applies to police officers. They're humans. Welcome, everyone, to Diakonos, a cop's calling. I'm your host, Anthony Weaver, and I'm joined by uh, my best friend and someone who has been my cheerleader for uh, the last 10, 11 years that I've known her, 10 years of marriage, 11 years since I've, I've known her. And, uh, so, and that would be my wife, Lauren Weaver. So she's here with me on the show. Hello, everyone. <laughs> um, so this evening, uh, we kind of want to accomplish a couple things on this episode. Obviously, it's our very first uh, launch episode. And so I think it's important to kind of lay out, you know, what we kind of want to accomplish in, in this episode. So a couple of things we want to accomplish is kind of who we are and our, a little bit of our, our history. How did we get here? Uh, talk a little bit about the culture, um, the climate towards police uh, in this day and age, uh, and then the in last year, twenty twenty, when it when it kind of really hit the fan, and and just uh, talk about how that affected us a little bit, and and just practically how did we decide, or how did I decide to do a podcast and Lauren decide to you know, once again, support me in a way that, that she does so well. I also want to just talk about the podcast name and the cover art. You know, what does Diakonos mean and, and how did I come up with the name? And uh, what does the cover art, is there any symbolism in the cover art or anything like that? Lay out the goals of the show and talk about our mission. And uh, then talk to Lauren a little bit about her experience as uh, a cop's wife, my wife. And um, she has some very thoughtful things to to add uh, to that conversation. And then just close it out with, you know, how you can best support me, um, you know, as I, as I endeavor to do this. So the first, the first part of that is, you know, how did we get here? Um, you know, I think just a little bit about my background. I actually come from a Mennonite background, and that is a denomination that is generally pacifist in nature. And so what that means is they don't believe in using any type of physical violence or force against uh, anyone, um, even in self-defense um, at times. And I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to paint all all people in the Mennonite denomination as that, but generally speaking, those who are in the Mennonite um, denomination of Christianity uh, believe that. So that is kind of the background I come from. I don't have any family members that were police officers. I didn't know anyone that was police officer, and uh, but I decided that it was it was something 
that I wanted to do. And I think the reason I I kind of landed on it was I didn't want a job that was the same. I didn't want to be behind a desk. And I didn't want to uh, be doing the same thing every single day. I wanted to do something different every day and and probably was attracted by some of the adrenaline and uh I can think of you know one of my friends right now would be telling me I was absolutely attracted by some of the adrenaline and I was uh but I also I grew up you know kind of watching cop shows with my dad and I always held uh, the people that did that, the officers that did that, members of the military in very high regard. I, I, there was something about that sense of duty and that commitment to a bigger cause and the camaraderie of that uh, that always kind of, I don't know, spoke to me in a certain way, I guess you could say. And so in high school, my senior year of high school, I took a class at uh, then called VOTEC, now the Career and Technology Center here in, in, uh, in Pennsylvania, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and uh, really kind of enjoyed it and really decided that's what I wanted to do. So Lauren and I, we, we live in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Uh, it's kind of, it's, it's eastern part of Pennsylvania. It's about an hour to an hour and 15 hour, 20 minutes west of Philadelphia. And Lancaster, for the most part, is known for Amish people. When everyone thinks of Lancaster, they think of Amish people. Um, and, and, you know, it is an uh, area that is filled with, with, with a lot of Amish people, and that is a big, uh, you know, religious sect here, I guess you would call them. And, uh, but within Lancaster County, Lancaster City um, sits. And so as I started to look at different departments that I wanted to test with after getting out of college, um, I only did two years. Basically, I, I did two years to get myself to an old enough age to start taking tests. And as soon as I was old enough to start taking tests at departments, I started taking them. I took a test for a smaller municipality here in Lancaster County. and, and and didn't do well on the test. And then I took Lancaster City's test and I did well, scored high, got through the background process, uh, which was, you know, that's always nerve wracking for someone that has no idea what they're getting into, which was me. And, <laughs> and so then uh, got hired with Lancaster City in December of 2000. So Lancaster City just to give you a little bit of a layout of what Lancaster City is like, I believe it's just over seven or right around seven and a half square miles, uh, right around 60,000 people population-wise. And um, it's a small city, but it has some, some big city problems, I would say. Um, so just like any urban environment, I did did some quick research just to give people an idea of, of, you know, what officers in Lancaster City face. And uh, in 2020, for instance, there was, uh, according to uh, the, the stats I could dig up for 2020 based on my experience when I was still working for the department in 2020, 
and also just going back through their website and their Crime Watch page. Uh, there were eight eight ag assault stabbings, um, seventeen shootings that didn't result in uh, homicide or anything like that, and then um, seven seven homicides, I believe. Uh, the Lancaster City Police Department handled in 2020. And one of those was an officer-involved shooting. And generally speaking, thinking back over my career, so I was hired in December 2020, or I'm sorry, I was hired in December 2000. I retired in December of 2020, or, or that's when I reached 20 years. My effective retirement date was January 2021. And thinking over my 20 years with the department, I think we probably averaged, I was thinking about it the other day, I, I think we probably averaged maybe one officer-involved shooting a year. Not not all of those were, were fatal, but um, so there was a level of violence and, and um, that we had to deal with in the, in the city that some of the smaller municipalities don't deal with. And, um, you know, like I said there, we had, it looked, I believe we had right around 17 actual shootings where we had a victim, someone was either struck by gunfire, I think maybe one of those shootings, just some rounds went into a house um, and no one was hit. But uh, the other thing that Lancaster City has is a level one trauma hospital. And so that hospital has actually, I believe, kind of helped to keep our our homicide rate down um, uh, somewhat. So it just gives you a little bit idea of what the environment was like um, that I worked in. And I mentioned that I worked there for 20 years. So I got hired, like I said, December 2000. Went on patrol at that time. We were doing 12-hour shifts uh, and we were doing swing shifts. So you would do 12 hours on days, 12 hours on nights, and you would switch every two weeks. And um, so I did that. I did that for about four years. Um, I had the pleasure of riding with some officers, some guys that were really, really good uh, street cops, really good patrol officers. And uh, they really helped me to learn the job and become good at the job. And I was doing fairly well. And I was doing well enough that I was able to put in for uh, what is called our selective enforcement unit in 2005 and get selected for that. And I always feel like the best way to describe that is kind of a vice type unit. We did a lot of, um, you know, drug work. So I had the uh, privilege of doing some undercover work, um, surveillance work, and I did, you know, a lot of drug investigations. Uh, So I did that for four years. And so from 2005 through 2008, 2009, I went back to the patrol division and I was on night work. And 2009 is when I first met Lauren. So that was a very important, you know, uh, thing that, that happened to me. And looking back, a very helpful thing. Uh, as as I went on in my career. And it was also helpful for us, and I don't know if you want to speak to this at all or not, that I had already been on the job 
10, just about 10 years when I met you. Instead of us being married, you knowing me before I got into law enforcement, um, I thought, you know, I'd seen some, some guys I'd worked with um, and gals I'd worked with who, you know, were married, doing something different, and then uh, after they were married, got hired as, as police officer, and it was, it was a lot more difficult transition than I think we had. I mean, I don't know. You, I guess we can't really speak to it because we didn't live, you know, we didn't live that. But in talking to some guys, it seems, it seems like if they were doing something different, got married, and then got on the job being a police officer, it was just a little more of a, a challenge. Yeah, I do think, excuse me, I think that, uh, I think it was helpful. I think it was one less transition, you know, as, as a newly married couple that we needed to undergo. Right. Um, you were settled in your career and, um, yeah. So I, I met you as a cop and yeah, it's, I think it was just, uh, I made all of those other transitions when you're getting married, moving together. It was just one less thing that we needed to deal with. Yeah. It was good. Yeah. And I think it was good for me too, because those early years, um, you know, as a Christian, I was kind of, I don't want to say I was trying to find myself, but I was really trying to balance my faith with the job and just the, the chaos of the job. And, um, yeah, I, I didn't, I think as I got on in my career, um, I was able to kind of digest that a little more and and just come to a better a better place for for myself just emotionally spiritually um you know maturity wise you know that sort of thing so I think it was helpful so we got married 2010 uh I'm still working patrol I'm still on night work I continue to work on night work and then we have our first child and a a year after a year after she was born i decided to make the switch to day work uh still stayed on patrol at some point in there before we had um our first our daughter i had gone up and done a stint in detectives for 3 months it was like a tr- a 3 month training position and i really thought uh, this might be a chance for me to get off the street. And I was looking forward to it. And I got up there and, and I did not like it. I did not like it at all. And I, I couldn't wait to get back to the street um, to just regular patrol. And so I, I just did that. I, I worked patrol, uh, continuing to work in that capacity. Uh, first night work and then day work after we were married. Then I got promoted to sergeant in 2015. I stayed on as a street patrol uh, sergeant, uh, on, on the day work shift that I was, that I was on. And then in, uh, 2019, I was, had the opportunity to put in for and, and got the sergeant position back in SEU, um, the selective enforcement unit that I had worked in for four years from 2005 through 2008, I, I went back to that unit. Uh, as a as a patrol or as a uh, sergeant of that unit 
uh, which was just a really cool way to finish out my career. So, you know, 20-year career, you know, it, it had, I loved it, you know, everything about it. Um, I did really enjoy, I believed going in, it was a calling, um, you know, for me to do. And I, I became, I, I think I was, I was pretty good at it. Not the best. Uh, there, there are guys that still work at the department or that I worked with, um, that, that were very good and, and much better than me, but I was able to do a lot in my career, experience a lot in my career. And a lot of those experiences, you know, deeply affected me. Um, and deeply, you know, brought some deep challenges, I think, to our relationship, um, and our marriage that, you know, that we had to walk through and, and work through. And so that kind of, you know, that stuff kind of weighed, weighed on me over the years. Uh, I was always one that was quick to talk to, uh, Lauren about, you know, what I was going on. I didn't, I didn't try to keep stuff tucked inside and, um, you know, I tried to let her know what was going on and, you know, she could, she could tell that things were affecting me probably, you know, I don't, how early, how early in our marriage do you think you could tell things were starting to, to affect me or, or build up at all? Um, I think sometimes, sometime after our son was born, um, started to notice that um you were just a lot more quiet um a little more withdrawn just seemed seemed kind of lost in thought a lot and yeah just started to feel like you you had just drifted a little drifted away a little bit just we'd lost some of that yeah yeah and i remember we we had some pretty hard conversations about that where you know Lauren just challenged me on that, like, you know, you're here physically, but mentally you are in another place. You are not, you're not here. And she was, she was right. I mean, there were, it was just hard. Like it it was hard to be emotionally present and, and, uh, and it, it, you know, I, I would have periods where it was get better and, and I, you know, I think I, I would think I was doing better and then I would have periods where I wasn't. And so that kind of progressed uh, for several more years, just, just, you know, nothing major. Like we weren't, you know, I wasn't, you know, depressed or anything, you know, suicidal or anything like that, but definitely was, was struggling. And Lauren had been encouraging me to go talk to someone, and um, I was not too in favor of doing that. I don't know why, uh, but I I did finally. I relented uh, in to did, when did I when did I do that? Did I start that in 2018 or 2018, or did I start it in 2019? I was thinking 2019, but okay. I I could be wrong. Yeah, you might be right. And uh, so 
yes, it would have been 2019. So I, I did, I, um, you know, I found a, a good biblical counselor and I started, uh, you know, having conversations and, and things were looking up. I was doing better. There had been conversations around year 17, 18 of, Hey, you know, I don't know if I can do a full 25 years. Most, most guys in, in, in our department do, uh, 25 years. And I was thinking I might only do 20 and we just didn't really think it was a viable option. Um, and I started, you know, doing better. I think we, we started seeing improvements in just how I was doing mentally. Um, and so we're like, okay, you know, I was like, I, I, you know, I can do 25, you know, I, I really think I can, I can push through. It's not going to be easy, but I think I can, you know, make it work. And then, um, 2020 happened. And, you know, Laura and I can smile about it a little bit and chuckle about it. But that was, um, you know, and I think Lauren would agree with me that that was, you know, probably the tough, toughest year we faced together uh, with me and law enforcement. Would you agree with that? Yes, I would. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, and I think leading up to you know, um, 2015, 20 to 16, whenever it was that, you know, the job had just finally started to really take a toll. Um, and, and we started to notice that. Um, I think part of the reason for that was that you had, you know, spent your whole career at that point, um, on the street, on, on, on patrol, like you never really let up. You, you just continued to go at the same pace that you did when you were hired, uh, for your entire career, basically. Um, so I, I, you know, I think that when you talk about it, um, you know, and even, even by the time we met some of your friends that were hired with you, we're just starting to, to move on a little bit within the department into other areas. Um, just a little less intense, you know, still like super important work, but just a little less intense on a day-to-day basis, every shift. Um, so I think that just kind of caught up with you and, um, you know, you see, you've seen and done a lot of really intense and traumatic things. And so I think that that just takes its toll over time. So, yeah. yeah. So, so as you started to just talk about it and, um, process through in counseling, um, yeah, it, it kind of put some of that wind back into your sails. And I think you felt some more vigor for the job. You're like, yeah, I, I, you're enjoying it again. Um, and felt like maybe, maybe we could, go go further and i don't think and i think we know at this point that was not god's plan for you and i think it took 2020 for us to both see that and know that that god's plan was for you to be done at done at year 20 right and i think it's still even it's it's bittersweet um it's a bit surreal and it's it's you know it's i think it's still a little difficult to come to terms with because there's other people who have done this job, who have done law enforcement, who have been involved in way more, who have done much more, and who are still doing it. And I just, I just, um, you know, 20 years, you know, it's, it's like one of my um, supervisors and, and at work, uh, or I should say one of, one of my supervisors that I used to have 
at uh in the at Lancaster City uh police department, you know, said, Hey, everyone has a shelf life. And I guess in my mind, I wanted my shelf life to be a little different. And I think that was that was it continues to be a little challenging for me uh that that I couldn't that I couldn't go go a little longer because year 10, 12, 13, 14, I was like, hey, I'm I I'll probably be doing this till I'm 60. Uh I did not think I thought I was doing well. Um I don't think I was doing as well as I thought I was doing. I think stuff caught up to me. Yeah. I I I mean, you did you did the job so passionately your whole career and I think that was part of the reason, you know, for for it all catching up to you was because you didn't you had no chill at work. You just you went a hundred miles an hour every shift. So, you know, yeah, you, you have nothing to uh nothing to be ashamed of there. You only only uh should have a lot of pride for how much passion you had for the job your whole career. Yeah. I did not have any chill. I was not a, I'm not a laid back guy. Really? I'm a pretty intense guy. And uh yeah, I can I can hear some of the guys that I used to supervise uh, laughing right now because because I would always joke with them about, hey guys, I'm a, you know I'm so laid back. I'm a, uh, yeah <laughs> right. Um. So yeah, and you know, and what happened in 2020? You know, obviously we had the George Floyd incident, and I don't I don't want to get into that too much in this episode. Uh, there's there's a lot to say about that episode. Uh, I'll I'll say this. I believe that was used by certain people to push certain things that weren't necessarily true. So it brought about, you know, this this whole idea of uh, racism is rampant in law enforcement. This whole, uh, you know, push by Black Lives Matter that uh, race, you know, all cops are racist. And it was faulty logic from the beginning because, you know, when you watch that video, as terrible as the video is, and as tragic as the loss of life is in that video, the idea that you could watch that video and immediately decide that it was a race issue uh, was wrong. It, it very well could be a race issue. But the more I know about the case and the more uh, video I've watched, I've, I've watched the entire video from the very beginning when they first made contact with uh, George Floyd. Uh, I don't I don't know how you can watch the entire video and 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 draw the conclusion this is absolutely about race when you look at the other the races and ethnicities of the other officers who were on scene when you look at how they treated him before um he was down on the ground but regardless again I could really you know talk about that a lot more but it was used to to push start pushing a narrative against the police and this narrative took hold and we saw it, you know, sweep across the United States. And it happened in Lancaster City too. We had social um, you know, social justice movements that that hopped on this. And uh so, you know, end of May, beginning of June, uh, we had groups that began to pretty much take over the entire block in front of our police station. And um and break the law. And we, we as a police department, uh, did nothing about it. We did not enforce the law. And 
it violated my conscience very, very deeply as both an officer who took an oath to uphold the law as and as a believer and someone who prescribed to the idea that my main function and my main job as a law enforcement officer was to um, to go after the lawbreaker and to lift up and support those who kept the law. And I was, I don't know what the right word would be. I was incensed. I was upset. Um, I was extremely grieved by the the whole thing. And I remember calling one of my uh, best friends and just uh, telling him that for the first time in my career, I was embarrassed to be a police officer and not embarrassed because of what people were saying about us, not embarrassed because I believed the narrative that was being pushed by the press and by um, these hate groups. Uh, but in, but embarrassed because we were choosing to try to appease lawbreakers and we were choosing not to enforce the law. And I found it absolutely disgusting. And, um, and some people would say, you know, well, what's the big deal? You know, they were just, you know, people were just blocking the streets. People, you know, were just marching. And I would say, yes, people were doing that. That in and of itself, at some point, you know, is a violation of the law when you refuse to get permits to do it. And when you start impeding the ability of law-abiding citizens to move freely in an area that they have just as much right to. So, yeah, okay, you have that. But then when I was standing on the line sometimes at these, at these protests and riotous situations, and we were having things thrown, and we were having people threaten to uh, rape and kill our children, and we were um, having people use drugs in front of us without penalty, and we did nothing. We did nothing about it. And um, at one point, we had an explosive device set off around the corner of the police station, and we did nothing about it. We didn't secure the scene. We didn't clear the station. We, we basically hid in the police station at one point during all this, and none of this was reported in the press. None of this was reported in our local press. At one point, we had an outlaw motorcycle gang uh, pull into, so this is a gang of criminals who are engaged in drug trafficking, violent crime, uh, use of illegal weapons, and this illegal, you know, criminal motorcycle gang perceiving the weakness of the police department uh, pulled in, moved barricades that protesters had set up, pulled in in force uh, with support vehicles, and basically told the protesters they were not going to allow them to burn the city down. While myself and other officers hid inside the police station, an outlaw motorcycle gang did our job for us. It was one of the most demoralizing things I've ever been a part of. And it was... I just kind of saw, I saw guys who were good 
and gals who were good police officers who were just gutted by this. Uh, being asked to do things and violate their oath and violate their conscience, even if they weren't believers, violate their conscience about what is right and what's wrong. And uh, it was it was intense. And it was also, you know, very frightening for Lauren. Uh, you know, you were many times, you know, some of those weeks were sleeping in your clothes because uh, you were very concerned about me being injured um, at work and having to, you know, respond to the hospital quickly or something like that. So it was, it was a very, very difficult weeks. And I'm not saying, I do want to clarify, I'm not saying that the moment someone blocks a city street, you should throw tear gas and rubber bullets. But at some point, uh, when that action and that activity is uh, impeding law-abiding citizens from going about their daily business, or from resting or sleeping, um, there needs to be expectations set and an explanation that you are in violation of these laws and you have five minutes to cease and desist and clear the area, get up on the sidewalks, get into a park area, open the street up. And, and then if, if people choose not to do that, they've, they've picked their side. And the other thing that I would bring up in this whole conversation is that if you're going to attempt to appease a group of people, where does that stop? And as a law enforcement agency, our main mission, our main focus is just that, law enforcement. And so if we pick and choose, if we say, well, this group, we're going we're gonna to try to appease, we're going to you know, try to do our best to make it okay and meet demands and talk to them and uh, you know, do all these things instead of enforce the law, what happens if a pro-life group comes into the city and decides to, you know, block the street with their vehicles, set up loudspeakers, and and uh, and do their do their thing? Are we going to allow a group like that to block the street and do whatever they want for a week? Or are we going to clear the street? And if your answer is no, we're going to clear the street, we're not going to allow a pro-life to do it, well, then you're playing favorites. And if your answer is no, we're going to allow it, regardless of the group, then you're welcoming anarchy into uh, your jurisdiction. And so these were the things I was wrestling with, and I felt they were super clear in my mind, and I felt there was just this, this like complete level of confusion uh, around me. And uh, it just, it deeply affected me. I felt like I was violating my conscience by, you know, basically not doing my job and enforcing the law. And I, you know, and at the same time, there was, there was nothing in me that really wanted to do it because I knew what it meant. I knew if we went out there, I knew guys were probably going to get hurt. I knew that I could possibly get hurt. I knew that the you know guys and gals beside me could could possibly get hurt so i knew what it meant and there you know it wasn't like i wanted to do it 
you know, but I knew it had to be done, as did every single person, every single officer that was with me. We knew it had to be done, and we didn't do it. And that was a. That was a very difficult and it kind of it kind of just I kind of started seeing things that and started realizing that that my time that I may no longer be called to do this job because it you know I think there were some changes that are that are being made and I also found myself on the street just second guessing myself worrying about the optics, worrying about, you know, how is this going to appear, worrying about if I do my job, am I going to be crucified in the press? And I never was like that in my career. And I felt like I was becoming a liability to myself and a liability to the officers working around me. And it wasn't fair to them to, to do that. And ultimately, I just started uh, beginning to feel like I was called to something else. And I didn't, I didn't know what that was. And, uh, so we started, we started, Lauren and I started really talking about it, uh, trying to figure out what it would look like for me to retire at 20 years and, um, began to pray about it. And, yeah, we just kind of started moving in faith in that direction, but we didn't really know what it looked like or or where I was going to land. Lauren was, well, can you just, yeah, how how were you affected by all this? How did how did it affect you? Twenty twenty. Yeah, and everything I was going through, you know, during the summer, like how did it af- affect you and? I don't know if you can speak to that at all. I think it was just really difficult and challenging um, watching. I felt like before my eyes, I was seeing something that had always been a passion and a calling um, just take on a really bitter taste for you um, because you were not allowed to do the job the way that you had been in the past and lawfully and just just your duty, your sworn duty. Um, you know, you and the entire department basically was was not allowed to enforce the law. And watching the toll that that took on you mentally, emotionally, and spiritually um, was devastating for me, too. Um, and obviously, being afraid for you physically, you know, for weeks at a time sometimes, and then things would flare up again and calm down and flare back up. It was, it was definitely a, a really difficult season obviously for us um but i think uh you know as we as the summer wore on and as fall came i think i think we began to to just realize that maybe that's what god was doing was taking something that you know you maybe would have never left on your own um because of the passion that you had for the job even if that passion waned um, just your your duty to that calling. Um, you you may have stayed there indefinitely, you know, had God not taken that that good thing, that sweet thing, and kind of turned it bitter. 
Um, I think it was, it just made it clear for both of us, even for me, because I was in the past when we would talk about you moving on at year 20, we both were like, well, that would be a stupid financial decision. So <laughs> we're not going to do that. Right. But it, it just, it made it very clear for me too, which was a blessing, you know, in, in disguise at the time that um, I felt clearly too, that God was calling you to do something else, that it was just time for you to go. Um, so, you know, in, in hindsight now, 2021, it, it does feel like that was a blessing to, to know clearly, to, to feel that clearly. Yeah. And I think, you know, we, we can also speak to just God's faithfulness in the fact that I was in my yes. 20th year. Uh, yeah. I, it wasn't like I was in year 17 or 18. I was in my 20th year, which was huge. And also, you know, I kind of came into law enforcement as a sweet spot. It was, it was, you know, my understanding of Lancaster City in the early 90s or, or through the 90s was it was super violent. Um, crack hit the streets and it was just a super violent time in the city. Uh, a very difficult time for law enforcement, for the Lancaster City, you know, Bureau of Police. And, and so I started in December 2000. Obviously, then we had uh, 9-11, my, you know, first full year on the job. And there was this shift and there was this love and there was this, uh, there were, there was, the country just really came together in support of first responders. Mm -hmm. A deep appreciation. Yeah. And the city too, you know, working in the city, you know, we love the city. We love visiting the city. Mm -hmm. We love going to restaurants. And when I first started working in the city, I did not go into the city and and the 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 police department and the officers, the caliber of officers at you know the police department in Lancaster City, really had a direct effect on the improvements that happened in the city and the safety of the city. Because uh, as I got on my career and and bef- before I met you, but not too far before I met you restaurants and coffee shops and and there there was a different vibe in the downtown area of the city and um we've always enjoyed going into the city going to restaurants there and we we hope that continues mm-hmm. I'm, I'm a little afraid if that will continue based on you know some of the things i've seen but um you know just just from the politics that are being played uh you know at city hall and everything but hopefully that will continue uh, because we do enjoy uh, coming to the city. So I kind of had that sweet spot in my career, you know, where, you know, we didn't have a lot of hatred direct. I mean, we, you did on a day in day out basis on the street when you were dealing with people because you were primarily, you know, a lot of people you were dealing with did not like the police, uh, which is just a nature of the job. But it was kind of, I look back and I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful that I got to do a 20-year career, kind of what I think like a sweet spot, you know, in in the history of the city there at Lancaster City. So yeah, so Lauren had been listening to podcasts. She had been listening to a lot. She had been reading a lot. Uh, she was uh, ferociously getting after it, I would say just trying to learn, understand, 
um, decipher if, you know, she was off base, uh, you know, if I was off base, if, yeah, just trying to, I think just like a lot of people were trying to figure out what in the world was going on and, and what, if any role, you know, we, we had in it. And so she had encouraged me to listen to a podcast. I don't even remember whose podcast it was or who was on the podcast. But I'm listening to this thing and I thought to myself, I could I could start a podcast. I feel like I have a lot of things to say. And even if there's one person that'll listen to me, <laughs> you know, I I could do this. And you know, you we are very private people. I think that's, you know, one thing that, you know, it, the idea of me doing a podcast, I have never thought of it one time in my entire life until that moment when I was listening to whatever podcast it was. And I, and I had this thought like, oh, I could do a podcast. So I, I, I was getting ready for work. I told Lauren as I was walking out the door, I said, Hey, I could do a podcast. And she just kind of gave me um her her knowing look like Anthony has another crazy idea that he's throwing on the table. Cause I a lot of times I'll just throw stuff out there for a little bit shock value or just to, you know, or just because I, I talk, you know, I'll I'll tell people what's on my mind. I kind of wear my emotions on my sleeve. I don't really hide too much. But it was a it was the same kind of look you gave me when I went through this stint where I wanted, I thought it would be cool to fight for the Israeli army. And, <laughs> and Lauren is laughing over there. But, um, but yeah, I, I, so I, I was doing this research about whether or not an American could, you know, go to Israel and fight for the Israeli army. And uh, you can, if there's anyone out there that's wondering, you can. You just have to be able to learn Hebrew and speak Hebrew. So that kind of shut that uh, dream. I don't know if it was a dream. I think it was just a, a pipe dream. I mean. I'm pretty sure the timing of that coincided with you being off for a while right after our daughter was born. And I think you had some postpartum depression. <laughs> I think you were going a little stir crazy and that, that kind of rocked our world. Um, our, our first was a, that, that was, that was a difficult first like three months or so of her life. Um, she, she was a, she's a dream now, but she got it out of her system during infancy. So I think you were just trying to get away maybe a little bit. (laughs) Yeah, maybe. I don't even remember when it was, but I just remember, uh, telling you, Hey, uh, you know, I've been looking into, uh, if an American can fight in the Israeli army, you can, uh, it's possible. And you just looked at me like I was from Mars. Um, which is probably the proper response. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so, so then, um, uh, so that was kind of like the same look you gave me. I get to work, I pull up a search on Google about, you know, creating a podcast. I send you a link to the website and you responded back, oh, you're serious about this. And at that point, I, I don't think I was serious. I was Oh, maybe I was, maybe I was serious about it, but I couldn't stop thinking about it. Uh, and I, for, for a couple months, I could not stop thinking about it. 
and researching it and looking into it. And I was talking to Lauren about it. I wasn't talking to anyone else about it, but I was talking to Lauren about it. And, and yeah, I just, we, you know, I began to feel pretty strongly that I was being called to, to do it. And so here we are, you know, uh, we're doing it. And, you know, if it, if it is something I'm being called to, I, I'm guessing it will be at least partially successful or very successful. If it's not something, then we'll quickly find out, I guess, right? I guess we will. And I do think uh, something you definitely have going for you in starting this is that I've always admired how much, uh, as long as I've known you, you're very quick to speak to family and friends about the job. Um, just to try to help people understand. Um, it's, it, it is often just a, a, a bit of an anomaly, um, particularly in the city. Like there's a lot that goes on and, and civilians you know, myself included, often are just like, what is going on? Like, what, what was that a video about? What was that stop about? Like, this looks terrible. Explain this to me. And you've always done a really good job um, just being really willing, really quick to just patiently walk people through why cops do what they do, what the thought process is, um, what their passions are. And, and so I think that you, that's something you really have going for you in starting this. Um, it's just a public platform now and not, not quite so personal, which is the challenging bit for us. Yeah. And I appreciate you saying that because I do. I, I appreciate when people come to me and ask me a question. Um, you know, during the whole George Floyd thing and everything, you know, it meant so much to me to have our pastor reach out to me and just ask my opinion, um, my thoughts pick my brain about some questions he had and other people incidents over over the last 20 years that have happened and and I've always always appreciated when people send me a text or hit me up and been like hey can you you know I'm seeing this does this doesn't make any sense to me do you think it's justified do you think it's legal you know and just to be able to walk people through that and I I think generally it's it, it's maybe been something law enforcement hasn't done a real good job at is, is educating people why we do what we do. And part of that is because we don't want it to be used against us. And the other part of it is, you know, while police officers have the same First Amendment rights as everyone else, everything they say, because they are an arm of the government, uh, there's always a balance. It has to be weighed against is what they're saying um, does it harm the police department or the, you know, the government that they work for in any way? Um, and obviously anything that's, you know, where you're, you know, attacking someone verbally or, or something like that. But is this officer saying something that harms the department or uh, puts him or her in a bad light where we don't think that they're able to do their job in an unbiased fashion. So cops are usually kind of leery on talking publicly about anything. Now you'll see sheriffs do it, you'll see chiefs do it, but again, they're they're appointed or you know, in the case of sheriffs, they're they're like voted in or out. So um it's a little different than um just just your you know, boot on boots on the ground patrol officer uh or or street sergeant, um, you know, saying something. Um, and most guys are, are just silent. 
they just take it. And uh, 2020 really tested that. Guys were really tired of just taking it. Uh, because the bottom line is they're out there every day doing a job and, and putting it on the line for people they they don't even know. And that is not over-dramatizing what they do. You know, if anyone, you know, yeah, it, it's not. It's not. You're going to calls every single day. Half the time you're going to calls of people you may have arrested the week before or two weeks before, and now they're calling you and you go and you help them. That's what you do. And uh, so, yeah, 2020, challenging year, but that's kind of how we got to where we, to where we are uh, right now. So get off that, and we'll start talking about the name uh, Diakonos, A Cop's Calling. Uh, obviously, I wanted The Cop's Calling in there because Diakonos in and of itself People, a lot of people are like, you know, what does that mean? So diakonos is a Greek word uh, in um, Romans 13, 1 through 5. And Romans 13, 1 through 5 talks about how God has established the government authorities, um, that they are there in place to uh, praise those who, who keep the law and to bring wrath down on those who don't keep the law. And that passage calls them uh, some some versions um, say calls them ministers, some calls them servants, but diakonos is the word uh, for that. And uh, the other thing I really like about the word is the mental picture it brings, because the root uh, of it um, is uh, the, some of the root meaning of the word is to. Uh, kick up dust in pursuit of something. So obviously a minister or diaconess sometimes means deacon, um, and depending on the context of when it's used. Uh, so obviously kicking up dust in pursuit of the gospel of Jesus Christ or uh, preaching the word, but in the sense of a law enforcement officer and someone who is going after the lawbreaker, that mental image of kicking up dust after a lawbreaker was just kind of a, a cool mental picture for me. The the cover art, I wanted to talk about that too. The you have the the thin blue line uh, that goes across horizontally. You have the white line that goes down vertically to make a cross. Obviously, something that's important to me as a believer and. I struggled with the thin blue line because I've never been a big thin blue line guy. Uh, I guess as a police officer, you're automatically part of the thin blue line. But I've never, I don't own bumper stickers and shirts and backpacks. I guess I do have a couple t-shirts that I bought for, for uh, fundraisers. Fundraisers. Yeah. But I, I never went out. Like, I just wasn't that type of guy. You know, I, there's nothing wrong with it. It's just, I, I just was never like a blue line guy. So I really struggled with putting it in there because I'm like, oh, this is like not really my style. But I felt like it did. It means something to the profession. And it also means something. And what it means is that in the United States, you have roughly 331 million people. And out of that 331 million, 800,000 
um, are in law enforcement. And that includes federal, state, local. So when you flesh that out, that's less than a quarter percent of the population is basically standing in the gap between the lawbreaker and those who keep the law and, and are, are trying to do the right thing. So the thin blue line, it means something. It doesn't mean silence, that we be silent about people doing the wrong thing within our profession. Uh, anyone that knows me, I have no time for people who are not of high character, integrity, honesty, whether it be on the job or off the job. You know, in this profession, I believe that we are called to the highest levels of just um, moral aptitude and moral um, compass within our lives, both on and off the job. And so I've never had uh, time for people who don't act like that or believe like that. But um, the thin blue line means something. Just a, you know, a couple stats here to kind of drive home that that uh, idea of the thin blue line. Since um, the first recorded police death in 1786, there have been more than 22,000 law enforcement officers killed in the line, line of duty. Currently, there are 22,217 names engraved on the walls of the National Law Enforcement Officers Memorial. During the past 10 years, an average of one death of a police officer every 54 hours occurs. And there have been 58,866 assaults against police officers in 2018, resulting in 18,005 injuries. Those are just some of the stats that I pulled from the National Law Enforcement Officer Memorial Fund page. Uh, it has those stats up on their, on their site. So yeah, that's, that's the name and that's the cover art. Uh, we want to pursue and we want to kick up dust after you know, the mission of the podcast. And that mission is that we aspire to promote law enforcement through a biblical worldview and help people better understand the calling of a police officer. That's what we want to accomplish uh, on this podcast. So goals of the show. Uh, one of our goals is share true hope through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'll say that about this one. It would have been very easy for me to not put that in there. I have always tried to um, be bold and and forthcoming with my faith. And uh, I understand that that might keep certain people from listening to the show. And I'm, I'm fine with living in that tension. I'm fine with that tension um, because the bottom line is, you know, we can, we're going to discuss a lot of things on this show and we're going to try to solve a lot of problems. Uh, but the bottom line is the only true hope that we have is in Jesus Christ, our Savior. And so I do, you know, I don't want it to be preachy and I don't want to, you know, I want it to be an organic thing that comes through. Uh, in my episodes, uh, when when I have the opportunity to do it, um, that we we have a hope. The hope is not in ourselves. It's not in systems. It's not in social justice movements. It is in Christ alone, and um, salvation can only be accomplished through Him. Uh, that is what the gospel is—the good news 
of Jesus Christ. So that's the number one goal of the show. Another goal is uh, give police officers a platform to tell their stories and explain the calling of this profession in their own unedited words. And uh, so I'd like to, one of, one of the issues I had in, t- in 2020 was as people, evangelical Christians and pastors and pundits and everyone seemed to be falling all over themselves trying to give everyone a seat at the table and listen to people. And I agree that we should, but in that, the police were completely shoved out of the conversation. Now, I didn't get to see every single interview and every single roundtable discussion, but I, I did not see any police officers being invited to the table to have any type of discussion. Um, they were demonized. They were uh, kicked to the curb. They were just verbally beaten. And to me, it was disgusting. And so on this show, because I support uh, the officers that still do this job and that go out every single day and night and do it, I wanted to be able to provide a platform for them to just tell their story. Like, what, why did you come become a police officer? And also express some of the things that they've lived through and gone through. And to do it in an unedited way. I felt like it was unfair for me to, or is unfair for me to have an officer on and then just, you know, he shares his story in his own words and maybe there's some curse words in there and me to edit that out and hold him to a standard that I maybe try to hold myself to and that I don't always do a good job holding myself to. And, you know, I just, I didn't think it was fair to them um, to do that. So I, I want officers to come on and be able to talk freely and not have to worry about that. And I understand the tension with that too, is that I may have people that will not listen to me then because of that. And that's fine. I've been living with tension for 20 years. I can handle a little, some people saying, hey, I don't like that you do this, or I don't like you. Okay, great. And that's fine. I, I, you know, I, I get it. I, I don't even necessarily completely disagree with you or whatever, but that is, that's, that's how, that's how I'm running, running it. So another goal is, uh, to stand firm against increasingly negative and harmful narrative regarding the police and what they do. I think that's already come out, um, in this episode. And, um, you know, obviously, you know, more to come on that. And then examine current events and incidents and provide context and considerations based on experience within the profession. Again, you know, at the beginning, I kind of, I touched on the George Floyd incident and there's a lot more to say on that. And I think, you know, as unfortunately these incidents happen uh, because we live in a fallen world where people sin and people commit crime. And some of that is very, very violent crime. And we have officers who are capable of righteous violence that are able to step into those situations and do what some people either have no desire to do, can't do, um, don't want to do, 
uh, you have officers that are willing to step to that and, and, and deal with it and make split second decisions that are then trimmed down into a 30 second clip thrown up on the news and everyone decides, Hey, he doesn't know how to do his job. Well, I want to challenge people with that a little bit. Put yourself in that officer's shoes. What would have you done? You know, we train for the 1%. 99% of the time, everything's going to go fine and work out. And we're going to be able to make it home. But we train for the 1% of the time. And we train for the 1% because the 1% is what's going to hurt you or kill you. And so we train for that so that in those moments, you can do what you need to do in order to get home. And you're making those decisions split second. You're not sitting on a couch, eating potato chips and drinking a, you know, seven up and, you know, deciding what you're going to do with time. And so that's what I talk about context and considerations. You know, there, there's so much context and considerations uh, in these videos that we see. And it's, it's only going to increase because now we just have more and more body cameras. Um, you know, not only do you have people shoving a camera in your face, everything you do, but now everyone's wearing a body camera um, or most agencies have body cameras. And so it's, it's just going to increase. And, and so I would just kind of want to bring some context and consideration to that. So I think the first way uh, we can start uh, meeting some of these goals and uh, that we talked about is I just wanted to talk to talk to you, Lauren, a little bit about your views on law enforcement and if they changed at all from, you know, growing up, young adult, 20s, to, you know, when you got married to me. And, you know, yeah, if your views on law enforcement changed, from what they were before you met me and after you met me and have been married to me? I don't think they really changed. Um, I think what changed was that context that you talk about um, just now. Um, I, always, I was always pro-military, pro-police, just kind of raised that way and, you know, watched cops also growing up. Um, so, yeah, I... I I don't think my um, outlook on on police work changed at all, but it was helpful to to know a police officer. Um, you know, so I think the the value of having diverse friend groups and just you know is is it's so good to be able to you know I, I personally I just wish that everyone had a cop in their family or in their close circle of friends, um, because that is generally what's lacking from these conversations. Like you said, is, is someone that can say, hey, I've lived through a situation like that. Can I lend some context? Can I let you know what I was thinking? Can I let you know what I trained for in, in a situation like that? Um, you know, even, even in the tragically awful ones where the cop maybe does get it wrong or did get it wrong, um, like you said, there's always context. There's what happened before that 30 seconds that we get to see from our couches. Like mm -hmm. what happened first? Who called 911? You know, who was being hurt or robbed from or whatever? Um, those kinds of things have really helped me, you know, as we've been married, 
as you talk through whatever is in the media, those, th- that context, that um, experience that you bring to our relationship gives me empathy for both sides. I mean, you watch a clip, you have empathy immediately for, you know, whoever, you know, ends up on the wrong end of, you know, law enforcement. Like you, you do, you feel empathy. You're like, man, that, that looks awful. That looks brutal. But I think what's lacking is, you know, empathy for whomever the original victim was and, and the cops, you know, and what they're going through and that they're, they aren't there because of their own decisions. They're there because of someone else's decisions. Um, so that has helped. That's, that's a good thing to have that. Yeah, I think you make a good point about the, the, the victims at the hands of the criminal. I mean, obviously, there's some crimes that are committed out there that, that don't have victims, but someone called 911. Sometimes that person who called 911 is the victim of a crime, and you know, there's not much talk or empathy towards that person. I think that's a very good point. I think the context, too, is so important. Um, you know, as you were talking, I just, I thought of an incident early on in my career where, you know, I almost, I almost shot a teenager who, you know, I believed was armed with a gun. I'm giving him commands. And, and that's how the call came in. Someone called 911 and said, we have like these three or four teenage boys walking down the street and one of them has a gun. And so I, I go to the call and I'm the first arriving and I see these guys and it's dark out and one of them has a gun. He's holding it. And I, you know, all I had for cover was a telephone pole and I get up behind this telephone pole and I'm giving him commands and I'm, I'm screaming at him, drop the gun, drop the gun, drop the gun. And I'm, I'm getting, getting ready to pull my trigger and he dropped it. And it was one of those plastic guns that would came with the like old Nintendo and Mm -hmm. old, uh, uh, what was the other big, uh, gaming system back in the day? Uh, anyways, it it was a black, one of those Mm -hmm. uh, plastic black gun that was used to play video games. Um, and I almost shot him. And so had that, like back then, and when I say back then, that was probably 2001, 2002, maybe 2003, I probably would have been okay. And if I remember correctly, I, I think the teenage boy was, was black or Spanish, uh, black or Hispanic. I, I can't remember exactly. But I look at that now today, you know, I would, you know, I most likely would have been done. You know, I could have been, definitely would have been crucified in the press. Probably would have been, very likely could have lost my job. Maybe brought up on criminal charges. And that is the pressure these guys yeah. are dealing with day in and day out. Right. And, and, um, and I, I, I will tell you, I absolutely thought it was a real gun. Yeah. Everything, I didn't know it wasn't real until it hit the ground and I heard the plastic and I, and it's giving me goosebumps right now just thinking about it because I was so close. Yeah. So close. So those types of things. Right. And, and, you know, <clears throat> cops and, and, and even you and, you know, many cops in, 
in cities like that they they have actual guns pulled on them and and so your training is for a reason and you respond right. in a certain way for a reason so it is it is crazy it's crazy to think about right and going back to that we train for the 1% like i i don't have the luxury right. of trying to in that moment figure out is this a real gun or is it not a real gun i i need to assume it's a real gun because if i assume it's not a real gun then i'm already I'm already like really hedging my bets. I'm already behind the curve because if it turns out to be a real gun and I'm planning for it to be a fake gun, I'm 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 behind the eight ball on it. And so you 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 train you you train for that moment and then you have to make a split second decision because if you don't make a split second decision, it could mean that you get hurt or killed or someone and, else does, yeah. 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 Exactly. So what else do you, like, is there anything else you wish the general public could know um, or not know, but maybe understand about law enforcement? I think, again, just the value of, um, you know, if, if you know a police officer, hit them up, um, talk to them, you know, preferably not on social media or via text, like, buy them a cup of coffee or have them over or call them um, and just ask them your honest questions about law enforcement, um, you know, and tell them what doesn't make sense. And I think cops are really used to the misunderstanding and confusion that comes from civilians, you know, a- along with the job where, where it pertains to the to policing. Um, so, it, you know, it's not like you said earlier, you're never shocked. You're never horrified. You're never offended by anyone's questions. Like you welcome them because you know that most people have never done this job. It is sometimes brutal. It is sometimes violent because of criminal behavior. It, it often just has to be that way um, because you can't let violent criminals run away from you. Um, you have a duty to deal with that situation. So you welcome those questions. Um, just to try to help people understand this job that is very different. It is like nothing, like like nothing else, you know. Right. Um, aside from military or something like that. Um, so I, I hope that people just you know take advantage of their friends or family members who are police officers, or if they know us, you know, call us um, and just. Uh, yeah, be willing to ask some of those hard questions that are floating around right now and um, that you will likely address, you know, at some point. And, um, yeah, pertaining law enforcement and just, I think that's part of the problem with culture right now is there's, there, it feels like there is so much that's off limits. There's so much that is assumed. There's so much that is, you know, just not, not talked about really. And right. if we're not bringing police into those conversations, but they're being painted as possibly the problem with society, how, how will we find unity? How will we find peace if we don't listen to everyone? Um, we need to understand history. We need to listen. We need to understand where people are coming from. Um, but I think that also applies to police officers. They're humans. Um, they are a different generation than the 60s or before. 
they have different friends, they have different families, they've had much different training. Um, and we need to treat them as human beings worthy of being listened to also, um, worthy of empathy and respect unless they break the law and, and you know, lose that, lose that, that right to, uh, to the respect that they have because of the position that they hold. So I, that's my hope um, is just that, uh, yeah, people will engage. They'll ask questions and that hopefully this, this podcast, your experience, the experience of the officers that you, co- that you have on the show will really just help people to see the, the people behind the badge, to see the passions behind law enforcement, to see how much cops care about people. They care about the communities that they serve. You care deeply about, you know, the section of the city that you spent most of your uh, career in, which is largely minority. You care deeply for those people. That's why you're there. And you've helped so many of them. They they would call or, uh, I'm sorry, not call, they would email. I'm sure call the police station too, but I remember you talking specifically about emails that you would get. They'd be like, hey, this is happening on my block. Like, I need help. You know, we, we, don't, right. we don't want this criminal activity going on. Um, and I don't, I just think that that doesn't get talked about in the media. You don't hear stories like that on the news. And that's so valuable that, that people know things like that. And, right. Yeah, I mean, and... It's true. I mean, the the area of the city I worked in was was majority uh, black and and Hispanic or Latino uh, ethnicity. And uh, so, if if someone would look at you know my arrest record and just look at my arrest record, look at all the people I arrested, um, they, I I know there there are people out there that'd be like, he's a racist based purely on the fact that the majority of the people you arrested were black or, or Hispanic or Latino. Because of the area of the city that you worked. Right. Only due to that. Right. And, and my, yeah, my, that would be one of my refutes to that is, yeah, you're, you're right, but that's also what made up the, the majority of the population in the area of the city I worked. And then on top of that, the majority of the people I then helped and the majority of the people who were victims of crime that I came to and assisted and helped were also black and Latino and Hispanic. Um, And so, yes, I was a white officer working in an area uh, where I did not really fit in. And at times I was hated because of my skin color. At times I was hated just because I wore a uniform. At sometimes those two things together were like a powder keg. And, um, but I went to every call I was called to and I tried to help people. And I also tried to do my best to uh, dig into and dig out, you know, those people that I knew were engaged in criminal activity. Uh, within the areas I worked and I was super aggressive and you know and I didn't I didn't to me it had nothing to do with color of skin it had everything to do with content of character and you know you know Martin Luther King that his statement that has that talks about that is is written down in the area where I worked and I would bring that up with people if people 
said, well, you, you only arrested me because I'm black or you only arrested me because I'm, you know, Hispanic. Um, no, I only arrested you because you committed a crime. And this is the crime that you're under arrest for. It has nothing to do with the color of your skin. And, and, and furthermore, do you think I would risk my career, my livelihood, my, you know, who I am as a person, my integrity to go out and arrest you based purely on the color of your skin? I mean, and, and, and sometimes I could have that conversation with a, with a prisoner in the back of my cruiser and it would, it would get through if they weren't too drunk or too high um, or, or not too upset. And every once in a while, I was able to bring that argument in front of them and, they, you know, okay, you got a point. Yeah. I, you know, so yeah. Hardest part for you about being married to a police officer. I think, um, obviously, it's really hard to watch you go through, um, you know, incidents that really affect you. But I think it's it's much harder to feel like no one or few appreciate or understand that. Um, you know, when, uh, when you're involved with an incident and then something similar, you know, might hit the news, um, you know, just, a, a, just something that looks too violent or whatever, um, you know, and, and, and I know you might have been in a similar situation and had to worry about your life and coming home to us and just do your job to the best of your ability. Um, you know, and, and then to hear, you know, friends, uh, family, sometimes, you know, it just, uh, draw instant conclusions and, um, is really, really difficult. You know, when I watch you every single day for years, be willing to give everything for a complete stranger um, because it's what you signed up to do. It's your job. It's your passion. It's your calling. And to have that just dismissed because of perceptions, because, you know, of, of any of these things that are just flooded our culture right now, it's extremely difficult. Um, and I know it's, it's taken a huge toll on law enforcement families. Yeah. Yeah. Well, keeping that in mind, you know, you know, is there anything that you then would tell, like based on those experiences and based on what you've seen that you would tell or pass on to, you know, other law enforcement wives? Not that you, you know, have all the answers or anything like that, because I know, you know, I'm kind of putting you on the spot with that, but yeah, anything you would share or or give advice about? I think um, the biggest thing for us that has helped our marriage, um, well, the, the single largest thing would obviously be our faith, um, has carried us through. Um, Jesus has held us through so many difficult situations. Um, but when it comes to our relationship, communication has been so huge. Um, you know, you talking to me about things that bother you um, or just, just talking about an incident, you know, that maybe hasn't even quite hit home yet. But um, I think, you know, being willing to listen, even when it's hard to hear or it doesn't make sense or, you know, those details maybe make you worry some nights then because you know the types of, I think, you know, as, as wives, as spouses, 
um, or just as family of law enforcement, like to be able to listen, to be willing to listen um, is, is huge. That's been huge for us, I think. And I've loved that you've always talked to me about stuff. Um, Because then if you are quiet, you know, if I can tell something's bothering you, I generally know what it is. I don't have to worry that, oh, is it our marriage? Oh, is it this? Is it that? Like, I generally have a a really good idea of what's going on with you. And it's, it just helps the, helps the health of our marriage. Um, So I think, I think that's key. I think also just communicating with other law enforcement families can just make you feel less like you're all alone in it. It can feel really lonely sometimes. Um, it's yeah. a weird job and it often looks bad and people don't understand it. So I think being able to uh, have a group of law enforcement friends is, is really helpful that you can just, they get completely where you're coming from. But I think it's equally important to have non-law enforcement friends and family too that you talk to because just as our experiences, you know, aren't everything um, we need to we need to be able to listen. Also, we need to be able to hear where where other people are coming from, um, and we just need to remember that you know the kinds of things that the stories that you come home with aren't the stories that most husbands or wives are coming home from work with. Like the world is not you know often as uh, sad or dark as it might seem to a law enforcement family. So I think it's really important that we you know talk to our church friends, our our you know civilian friends, and just have a, a well-rounded friend group so that we don't get stuck in a bleak law enforcement rut. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I totally agree with everything you said there. I mean, I think the communication thing, I, I know so many officers who don't talk to their spouses at all about anything at work. And I understand it to a certain extent. They don't want to put more stress, more of a burden on, on their uh, significant other but I do feel like it, it generally does more harm than good um, just because, like you said, the, you're able to more easily empathize and understand, okay, he's really quiet or he's really, he's not really with me today, um, but I know what's going on. And also just for my own mental health, if I didn't, if I kept all that in, Hmm. I mean, as much, you know, as much of a hard time as I, as, as I had at certain points in my career, I can't imagine how much harder they would have been if I literally would have not been talking about it. Yeah. And then the, the whole, you know, having community with other people in law enforcement, I think it's very, very difficult. I only know of, uh, you know, I can only think of, of pretty much one other person or one friend that I have outside of law enforcement that has any concept of what we do or, or anything that I've been through. Um, and that, that's nothing against uh, anyone that doesn't do the job. It's just very difficult for people who don't do the job that have an idea about it based on TV, movies what they see, what they hear in the news, what they read, um, until you do it or a part of that lifestyle, it's just very hard to understand it. And so having that community and that camaraderie, uh, even amongst the wives is important. And then, like you said, I think just as important or more important, and something that was told to me by the training sergeant that hired me is 
keep your friends outside the job because if you completely isolate yourself just with other cops, you're just going to turn into an angry, bitter, cynical person because all you do is mm. you talk about the, you know, just absolute detritus you, you know, walk through on every single shift. Because mm. um, you do, you just walk through, everyone calls you in their worst situation. So you're walking through their crap with them. Some, a lot of it's crap they've brought on themselves and decisions they've made, but either way, you're walking through it with them. And so you need outside people and people who have even maybe experienced some of the same stuff that you've had to help other people through on the job who have experienced it and gotten out of it or, or became changed, whether they, you know, come, came to a relationship with Jesus Christ and their whole world was changed and their whole life was changed, or whether they just made personal decisions and commitments and just got out of certain lifestyles. It helps you to humanize the people around you because it's not just another call. It's not just another victim. It's just not, it's not another suspect. It's not another dirt bag. It's not another, you know, um, just person who made bad decisions um you know it helps humanize people to to keep those relationships out outside the outside the job and also you know just just to help you keep your sanity because just being in that constant world and that environment all the time it just wears on you and in some ways you you are in very intimate bad intimate situations with people uh, that call you they call you every day every night with horrible situations and you go there and you are in those situations with them even though you don't know them you're in some of the most intimate situations with people you don't even know and they're bad situations and after and and but you can't take it on and you can't you you can't sympathize and you can't um, you don't even have time to process it because you have to leave that call and go to the next call. And the toll that that takes on you, I don't think most, I don't, I still don't think I know. And I, I know a lot of officers I work with don't know that the toll that that takes on you to constantly be in these horrible situations and, you know, with people who have lost loved ones and, mm. um, you know, whether it be natural causes, overdose death, homicides, um, you know, you're at scenes with blood and guts and puke and, and you, those are very intimate situations that you're in with people that you don't even know. And you, you do not have time to process it. You can't process it. You, there's no way for you to process all of it because you have to go to the next call. And the next day you have another shift. And then the next day you have another shift. And pretty soon you have 20 years of shifts with all that stuff. And, you know, it just, you, you feel like an emotional basket case at times. Um, And I think that's, that's where I was at times. And I think talking to you, having friends outside the job, having the support and the camaraderie inside the job uh, definitely are all things that help. Anything um, else? Like, I know we talked a lot already about, just the narrative against the police. Did you have any other um, thoughts while we were talking through that or, or talking now that, um, you know, about 
just a really negative narrative right now that's against the police and, and anything you would say to that or speak to that? Mostly, um, it really just breaks my heart. And that is because, you know, I, I know a cop, I love a cop, um, one who has just served selflessly and heroically for anyone, no matter what they look like, you know, who needs help. Um, so it's, it's, it's really heartbreaking for me to hear some of the things that are being said right now. Um, you know, and, and we saw something utterly horrible and tragic happen, you know, at the end of May with George Floyd and those kinds of things do happen and they are awful and tragic and they should be dealt with those, you know, when police officers break the law, they, they, or if they make a mistake, if they, you know, don't do their job properly, they, they should, that should be dealt with obviously. Um, but to, to think that that is the norm, that that is most police, that that is all police, that that happens every day, um, just rips my heart out of my chest because I know so many good police officers, um, you know, and, and they were all devastated by that um, and by the narrative that's been born out of, you know, th- the situations that are so few and far between. Right. So I hope that, you know, as we've talked even just this first episode, which, you know, first time at anything you know is is probably not that great but i hope that just uh just as we've talked even that the job the badge the the people behind it are more humanized for you know civilians um for people that listen i i hope that as you have officers on that they're just able to really share their hearts um, their passions, you know, their stories. Um, police are, are humans like anyone else, but by and large, they are heroic humans, humans with deep passion, deep care for people. And I, I wish that the world knew that more than it does right now. Yeah. Um, and I hope that in a very small way, maybe in a huge way, like we can help, help, un- help the understanding um, help shift the understanding of that again. Yeah, that's the hope. That's the hope. And I think, you know, for me, you, you have been, you know, such a great help, um, and such a great cheerleader for me and support for me. And, um, that's why it was important for me to have you on, you know, this fit, this very first episode. And, uh, I think it also, you know, resonate with, with people. Um, just the fact that, you know, Hey, this isn't a police officer. who's just a robot going out and doing his job. You know, here's some, here's his, his wife, um, someone that, you know, cares about him deeply, uh, with some, uh, very timely and, and, uh, good thoughts. So thanks for sharing those. It was a calling. And that's where that part of the podcast title comes in. It's a calling. And it was a calling for me. And uh, now I'm being called to something else. And so I'm going to try to get after that. So if you're listening and you are in law enforcement, I just want you to know that um, I appreciate you. I appreciate the work you do. I appreciate that you're doing something that 
I can no longer do and I no longer have a calling to do. And, um, you know, I just want to say, kick up the dust after the lawbreaker. Get after it. Don't be afraid of standing in the gap between those who obey the law and those who break the law. And uh, that is what diakonos is, a kick up the dust after the lawbreaker. So do it. I encourage you to do it. And I appreciate the work you do every day and every night out there. And hopefully that on this podcast, we can help people better understand why you do it. Um, that, that, that would be huge to me. So in closing, how can you support us? How can you support the podcast? Um, well, give the podcast five stars. That would be a start. <laughs> if you didn't like it and you think it would give you one star, listen to your mom. If you don't have any nice, anything nice to say, then don't do it or say anything at all. If you don't have any good rating to give, then don't give any rating at all. But give it five stars uh, wherever you listen to your podcast. And um, maybe even write a glowing review. That would even be better. And share us. Share us with friends and family on whatever social media uh, platforms you use. You can follow uh, the podcast on Facebook. Uh, We have a Facebook page, Diakonos, A Cop's Calling. So look us up on Facebook. You can also follow me on Twitter. Uh, I'm there under my name, Anthony Weaver, or at M. Tony W. And if uh, you really want to reach out to me or you have questions or comments, uh, you can also email me at diakonosacc at gmail.com. Again, that's D-I-A-K-O-N-O-S-A-C-C at gmail.com. So that's it. First episode in the book. Thanks everyone for joining us and we'll see you or I guess we won't see you. (laughs) Rookie mistake. I know. It's such a rookie mistake. (laughs) Uh, It is your first episode though. They'll they'll give you this one. Okay. (laughs) Until next time. Until next time.